We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Extremely excited to have my friend and fellow NICU mom, Melanie Hollins, with me today on the podcast. Today, we discuss prematurity awareness and specifically her experience of delivering her precious daughter, Emily, at just 25 weeks. Join us as we jump right in with our conversation, and we hope you'll leave this conversation feeling encouraged and thankful for those who encourage families walking in the path of prematurity. I was thinking about some of the things that um, before I experienced prematurity, what I knew, and I didn't know a lot. I didn't know Yeah, I mean, it's like I go back and I think the only thing I can really think of that I knew was that blessed commercial on the television with that mom who's peeking through the the little hole in the isolate and she said my tip is that you talk really close to the hole so that they can talk and it's because she was a smoker and that was that was kind of what I walked away with from the prematurity it's like Mm -hmm. so the only reason these things that prematurity happens is because the mom has done something wrong mm-hmm. when in fact you, that's not the truth at all you right know, the moms don't always do things that are wrong that cause right. this premature birth and all of right. that so why don't you tell us a little bit about maybe what you knew about prematurity and then your experience um delivering emmy i know absolutely zilch about prematurity <laughs> but i learned a whole lot um and i'm an advocate for it now um I'm trying to think if when I saw any, I have never seen really commercials. It's not really something that's advertised. I didn't know um, anything. And I think probably that could have been why when I uh, had Emmy, I was so scared because I didn't know anything. Um, but my family consists of me. Uh, I have a 14-year-old now. Uh, I have a 15-year-old going, well, she's, yeah, a 15-year-old stepdaughter. And my husband, he and I have known each other since 2009. We were married December of 2015. I was pregnant September of 2017. Uh, I always tell him I was hoodwinked or bamboozled. I was led astray. (laughs) I really didn't think that I could, it just wasn't, it wasn't a thought, you know, and even though um, I had my first child, uh, she was, I was blessed with her. I just didn't think that I could have children. Um, It just wasn't a thought that. It came to my mind. Um, in the process of becoming pregnant, um, I had found out that I had inherited end-stage renal disease from my father's side of the family. And so I ended up having 
uh, diabetes and ended up having chronic kidney disease. And I also had hypertension. So that really caused me not to think, oh, you're not going to, you know, have any kids. And I talked to my husband about it. And he was like, hey, I'm cool with that. If you can, great. If you can, okay. You know, and of course, he would prefer to have a boy because right now, standing there's two girls. So we go in for <clears throat> um, meeting with the transplant team. And, you know, they do all their blood work and everything. And they come back and they say, hey, we're going to put you on the transplant list. But are you aware you're pregnant? And I was like, nope. <laughs> it was funny because I love popcorn. I was at the movies with my little sister. And she said, Mel, you're glowing. I was like, oh, okay. You know, didn't think anything of it. And I had the popcorn, love popcorn. I regurgitated it all up. I was like, okay, that might be a problem. But I just I just took it as I wasn't feeling well. So she said I was glowing. I was, and I remember coming home because we were in Tulsa that day. I remember coming home and going back to work. And I told my friend, my coworker was gonna, she said, you might need to take a pregnancy test. I was like, no, I'm not pregnant. I'm like, in a way I'm pregnant. And she was like, you might want to take one. So I said, okay. So I go out and buy the most expensive pregnancy test I can find. <laughs> it was like about almost $10. And the, the uh, pregnancy test said inconclusive or it had a question mark. So I was like, well, what is this? So I was like, okay, that just means I'm not pregnant. Okay, fine. And I thought about it. I said, wow, the idea of it. And I just, just kind of was like, okay. Then I said, well, that, does, that just means I'm not. So the next day I go out to the dollar store <laughs> and go and get a 69 cent pregnancy test. <laughs> and that one said, you're pregnant. I was like, well, what in the world? <laughs> so I was like, okay, let me call the doctor to confirm this. And <clears throat> I knew I needed to go see uh, a gynecologist. So I said, let me go see my gynecologist and see, you know, what she says. And we went, I went in there and sure enough, she's like, yep, there's a baby in there. And I, I guess I had this look on my face of confusion <laughs> because she was like, are you okay? That's a good thing, right? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just surprised. So uh, she wanted to check my numbers and everything, make sure it was going to be um, an actual pregnancy and make sure I had the numbers to Cassie. I didn't know any of that, that you have to go back uh, at first for several blood tests to make sure your numbers stay healthy or they're increasing to show that you're pregnant. Never knew any of that. So along this journey, I learned so much, so much. Um, so we're going along with the pregnancy. I'm eating as much as I can. Um, because of my health issues, I learned I have to go to a specialist which means I have to go to the doctor fun every week, every single week. 
and it was crazy because my nephrologist was talking with my my doctor, my uh, high risk pregnancy doctor, and they were both talking. And they, when I tell you, they would talk about me. They would talk about me because I was always the patient. I wanted to be involved in what they're in my care plan. So every time I would go to see him, my blood pressure would be high. Every time I would go to see her, my blood pressure would be high. I'm like, you guys are giving me anxiety. And they said, well, there is such a thing as white coat syndrome. I said, okay, so we started a process to where I take my blood pressure at home. My blood pressure was fine at home. But every time I went to see them, the anticipation of what they were going to say. My blood pressure would be high all the time in their offices, but at home it was fine. So they actually acknowledged that I had white coat syndrome. And it's like, girl, you need to chill. So my nephrologist, you know, I saw him from time to time, but I mainly was seeing the um, special doc. Yeah. So she would call me trouble every time I go in the office. She said, what's up, trouble? <laughs> but I was just very you know, just very, I, I was just always, I was a person I wanted to know what is going on. So I can also make that decision because I can't just leave my care in your hands, even though you're the doctor, you know, I feel that I should have some input. So my nephrologist wanted me to be on dialysis at that time because my kidneys were at 13% functioning. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I'm going to be okay. We're going to have the baby and then I'll, you know, we'll see how it is at that time. Then I can go on dialysis after that. So they just were monitoring me the whole time. And the perinatologist, as we would have the uh, visits, they would make sure I'm okay, check my blood sugar, check uh, my blood pressure and things like that. But she saw that the baby wasn't growing as big as she uh, should be growing. So I would come back every week and she would check and it's what's called in, uh, intrauterine growth restriction. And I would eat as much as I could, but for whatever reason, the baby wasn't getting the food that I was eating and I was eating, um, but she wasn't getting it. And I don't know if my kidneys played a part in that or what, but she just wasn't, she just wasn't getting the food. So she was saying she's not as big as she needs to be. So it's like, okay. She said, well, but you're okay. You know, we're going to go with, you know, what we can do. And that's when she started preparing me for, um, well, your baby may not make it. She really may only have a 13% chance to live. You know, just preparing you for what could happen. And although it's, it's disheartening, it's still good to be prepared. It's still good to know because you can, after everything is settled down, you kind of go back to that conversation. You're like, okay, I understand now what they were talking about. So one day in February of 2017, I just started having pain in my upper stomach, my upper abdominal area. And I told my husband, I said, I don't really feel well. I said, I don't know. I said, my stomach is just really, really hurting. It's not where I felt the baby was. It was my upper abdominal area. 
And so I was just like, okay, I'm going to just lay down and see, you know, how I feel. That night, I was fine, but I woke up that morning in pain. So I called the doctor and she said, you need to go to the hospital immediately. And she said, we're having his baby today. I'm like, no, no, we're not. And um, she was really concerned about my blood pressure. So we get to the hospital. I don't even remember what my blood pressure was at the hospital, but I know that it was high that they admitted me, which they were going to do anyway, because she didn't want to take any chances. They were really playing around on eggshells because of me, because I was determined to try to hold on to this baby as long as I could. I was six months. I had just turned six months, which to me doesn't make sense to be 25 weeks and that's still six months. It just seems like the numbers, I guess because it's 25, I don't know. It just seemed weird, like it wasn't enough time. So I remember getting admitted to the hospital. They put the monitor on me and she was just a flip of fluttering everywhere. And you could hear the heartbeat and everything really, really well. And we were like, okay. And they said, well, when she gets here, they're going to take the baby. And I was like, no. And they were like, yeah, we have to do this. Oh, that just crushed my world. So um, I could be, it was my first time. And I just didn't know what to expect. So my sister was there, my younger sister was there, um, and my husband. And I was like, and my, my daughter was there and they were praying for me. And I just, it was just like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I still don't accept this. A very strong uh, person in my faith. And so I got to the point, I put everybody out the room right before everybody came. And I was just like, okay, God, I give you full control. Whatever you want to do, it's like, save my baby. So we go um, in the operating room, talk to the doctor, you know, and she kind of told me this could happen, this could happen. And I was like, okay. And um, I'm laying on the table. My husband's right there by me. We did a C-section. And next thing I know, I was like, I wonder if they took the baby out yet. And my husband said, they did take the baby. I was like, oh, Lord. At first, it was a moment of dread because I didn't hear that cry that the movies always say you hear or, or um, uh, you know, just what, you're, what you see happening. I didn't hear that. My husband said, yeah, she's, she came out and they said they're working on her in the incubator. And I said, well, did she cry? And they said, he said she had let out a little faint cry. I was like, okay. So I was like, okay. I didn't feel anything, which was not a bad thing. I didn't feel anything. So they came and brought her by me. She was little. It was just like one of those little glimpses of this little bitty body. You know something's in there. You have no idea what she looks like or what. So then they wheeled our way. And then I'm getting, I have to go to 
my room so I can get better and I can get some sleep because I'm high on drugs at the moment, you know, from delivery and stuff like that. And just tired, even when you have a C-section, you're tired. Um, but not only that, we had to look at my kidneys, uh, you know, just a whole person as a whole. Then I finally get the strength to get up and it was the same day. Yeah, it was the same day. And I spoke with the doctors and they told me what happened. And the first thing, and I'm probably gonna cry. <clears throat> the first thing the doctor said was, this is not your fault. We, we've always been taught to protect your baby. You're the mother, nurture your child. Um, so that's the first thing you think. It's your fault. You did it. And I remember hearing that, but I didn't understand that. Um, so I went to see her. It was almost like they were preparing you for what you were going to see. So I went to see her and I saw her and I was like, oh, you're small. You know, you're small. You're tiny. And I just remember seeing her and I was just like, wow. And it's still, you think about it and you're like, wow, you're still inside of me. I cr created this, this person. So I see her, and I rem I try to hold on to the words. And the doctor says, this is not your fault. So I meet all these nurses. I see how my baby's body is just as small as the nurse's hands, or it doesn't quite line up to be the size of a baby, you know, the, a normal baby, or a baby that they show on TV all the time. I was like, oh. And so I asked him, well, how big is she? She was 360 grams, which came out to be 12.7 ounces. And I, the first thing I thought about was a Coke can. A can of Coke is like 12 ounces. I was like, what? And they said she was only about 9.25 inches long. It's like, okay. The first, probably the first week, I probably cried every day. Probably cried every day. People said, oh, don't cry. And I'm like, I can't help it. You know, this little life. You just, you, you just really have to get your mental thoughts together. Because even though the doctor said, this is not my fault, I still feel this is my fault. This was my responsibility. It was something that I feel I could have controlled. Well, I wasn't able to control it. So I've made peace with that. And it takes a while to make peace with that. Um, so I cried for about a week. And when I talked to the nurses, wonderful nurses, they just began to tell me she can hear you, she can smell you, uh, talk to her. It was really quiet. And I think 
that first week, our first maybe two weeks or so, they were walking around on eggshells, I learned, because they didn't know. Because this baby was the smallest to survive in that time frame. And um, she was 25 weeks, six days, and she was less than a pound. And she wouldn't take milk. She couldn't take milk. So they had her on this, I believe, IV medications that would help her. And I didn't know if it would help her grow or what. So, um, you know, they were just telling me everything. The doctors would come around and talk to me. I hear what the doctors are saying. I'm not necessarily processing what the doctors are saying but I hear them, I would be in the wheelchair. They would will me to go see her and stuff. And I, I must say, I'm a kind of person, I always look for the positive in everything. I have to, that's just how I, I grew up and with my fate, that's just how I am. So I'm talking to the nurses, meeting them, and they were just quiet. They were, you know, not really saying too much. And I remember... I remember Kirsten, she said, would you like to hold your baby? And I was like, yeah. So they take her out of the incubator and I see all these tubes around her and everything. And they try to find a hat to fit her because the regular size hat that the hospital has does not fit her. Of course, it's too big. When I went to hold her, her temperature dropped. And, you know, I held her for skin to skin for maybe a few moments. And then they had to put her back in the incubator because she couldn't hold her temperature outside of the incubator. So I was like, okay. I feel like once I held her, I feel like something changed in me that no longer was I feeling sorry for myself or sorry that I put her in this prediction or um, sorry that I couldn't carry her to term, I started feeling like I needed to protect her. I needed to be her advocate. I needed to get her through whatever she's going through. After all, I'm her mother, so we got to get through this. So I started trying to find out information. It seemed like I became more alert to the doctor's visits. The nurses were around. I was watching them. I mean, watching them like a hawk, not to think that they were going to hurt her, but to see what they were doing that I could help, that I could be included. Um, and of course, nurses didn't want me to see when they would have to stick her, um, which they had trouble because she was so small and her skin was so translucent, they had trouble getting um, a pick line in her, so which meant they had to stick her all the time. The pick line would give them access to just taking blood from her, but because she was so small, they had to constantly stick her, which was like in her foot or so like that. Um, I remember one time, and I don't know how old she was, but it freaked me out. They were like, Mom, let us warn you. We had to get some blood. She didn't feel it. It's only in there temporarily. But they had 
got uh, obtained blood from her head. So when I saw her, I was like, oh, my unicorn baby. <laughs> but um, it was okay. It was okay. Um, but at that moment, I started saying, okay, I, I just felt that I needed to do to protect her. So I started singing to her. Well, I sung to her the first day and all that all the time. But this singing was different. I started singing uh, worship songs over her. And I started doing, and then I'm going to cry about this. Um, I started reading God's promises over her. And then I started doing words of affirmation over her, just speaking into her life. Because I do believe that what you speak happens. You put it out there in the atmosphere. I started telling her she was strong. She can do this. She can do anything uh, with God. And God can do the impossible. Uh, she was whole. Um, she was unique. She was healthy. Uh, she was God's masterpiece. Um, she was apple of his eye. Um, she's his queen. Just different things. And I, I spoke that to her every single day. We were in the NICU for 156 days. And every day I spoke that to her. I would sing uh, songs to her all the time. Um, I would sing You Are My Sunshine. Uh, that was just a song I wanted to sing to her so when she gets older, we can sing it or what have you together. Fast forward four years, we just sung it this morning. <laughs> We've been singing it every morning while she gets ready for school. She doesn't know all the words, but she's familiar with the tune. And she's familiar with the song that she interjects the words that she knows. So that came around like full circle. And when she's in the mood, she is a four-year-old. I can get her to even say some of those affirmations. She'll say, I'm whole. I'm strong. You know, so just speaking those things over her and just to even hear her say them now is really good back to being in the hospital every day all the time everything was just quiet it wasn't so much a touch and go it was more like i don't know from the doctors and things like that so all they could do all they could do was monitor her i learned about how the monitors work what the beeping meant um i learned how if she put her hand up you know I learned from her respiratory therapist that means to stop. It was their way of communicating. And I didn't even realize that babies that young, besides crying or something like that, were communicating. It was just a totally different awareness. I found out that as soon as you get there to the NICU department and you walk through those doors, they smell you. They, that their senses were so strong, they can smell you. So I thought that was amazing. I was like, you know, cause it's like, hey, she knows mama's here. I just learned how 
her temperament was. You know, if the machine went off, she wasn't happy about something. And if this happened, then she wasn't happy about this. And I I remember one of the head nurses, um, she was, they would normally put the babies on their backs to sleep. But Emily was a stomach sleeper. And normally in the NICU, they don't want the babies on their stomach. But the head nurse is like, if that baby wants to be on her stomach and her blood gases look good and she looks good, you let her sleep on her stomach as long as she wants to. <laughs> and she was an exception to that because she slept on her stomach a lot. And every time her blood gases would be good, her blood gases or, you know, the uh, blood work that they take every four hours to make sure she's where she's supposed to be. That's the only way that they can measure that she's doing okay or that she's declining or what have you. You don't want them to constantly stick her, but you know it's necessary. But her blood gases after, if she was laying on her stomach, were perfect. They were, you know, pretty pretty much really good. Every now and then she'll have some dips, so they would have her, you know, to, to make adjustments. Now, what I didn't say was, because she was so small, the week before I... Uh, delivered her with the C-section, I received an injection of steroids. Uh, and that was for the baby to help with her lungs. And I feel like leading up to that point, God knew everything that was going to happen because the steroids were just, they weren't even supposed to, I wasn't supposed to have gotten them yet, but it happened. So it's like, okay, because she was so small, her lungs were a little bit underdeveloped to help her breathe so they had to put her on what's called an oscillator it's a very noisy machine and it shakes their bodies you hate that but because she didn't have any weight to her the machine is kind of more powerful than the baby so it's going to shake her body it can be dramatic to look at but when you understand what it's doing it's kind of like it's a you tune out that and you see that okay this baby is still here she's still alive she's working with this she's this is what's happening uh, i remember the nurses telling me that we are the NICU was creating an environment as if she was still in her mommy's belly so you know light uh movement, sounds, things like that. Uh, you had to be quiet because she's still, if she's still in her mom's belly, all these things are muffled to her and her environment is still safe. They would make sure, you know, when they came in, they were very quiet, very considerate and things like that. Uh, everybody was so sweet. Her, her nurses were, I call them all my angels because they were so sweet. I don't want to start crying again, so I won't talk about them just yet. So she was on this machine, the oscillator. I don't remember how long, but the time that she was on the oscillator, I couldn't really hold her because I think because of the machine. I don't recall holding her while she was on the oscillator. A respiratory therapist would come in. Her name was Susan all the time her and Linda, and they would check on her, make sure she's getting enough moisture, airflow, oxygen, things like that. 
while she's on the oscillator. The oscillator would, you know, shake her and stuff, but that's how that was. So one day they decided, let's see how she would do on the ventilator. So I think I came in one day and she was on the ventilator and it wasn't the oscillator anymore. And they explained to me that this is a ventilator. It's doing the same thing as the oscillator, but it's not as um, severe, but it's still breathing for her. And she can, she can, this is allowing her to breathe on her own, whereas the oscillator was breathing for her. And so um, with a ventilator, you can turn it up, you can turn it down, depending on how much oxygen she needs. So I saw on the ventilator, there were days she was gradually getting better and better on the ventilator. And I was able to do skin to skin with her and hold her, talk to her, do my words of affirmation, to, uh, do the promises of God over her. She will live and not die. His promises are yea and amen. Um, and that he would never leave her or forsake her. Even when mom is not there, he's with her. And so uh, there was a time when I came in. She was back on the oscillator. I was like, oh, no, what's wrong? And they would tell me, they said, well, with babies in the NICU, you have roller coasters. You have days when they have good days. They have days when they have bad days. And today she was just having a bad day. And so they put her on the oscillator because, you know, she could have just been tired. And I guess you think about it as what? She's tired of breathing. That's not good. But she was on the oscillator and then they it would put her, they put her, ended up, she's one of the babies. They ended up putting her back on the vent, which was a good thing. And it seemed like after that, she stayed on the vent. She never went back to the oscillator, which was a great thing. She still had the little oxygen tube um, uh, strapped to her face. So I never really was able to see her full face unless she took a little bath. And then they took everything off. And it was like, do you want to take a picture? I'm like, yes. So I took a picture of her bare face. I remember they're telling me that because she hadn't been eating any milk yet, drinking any milk yet, her bilirubin was getting high because she was on the IV liquids and it was affecting her liver. So they had to put her under the bilirubin light. Now, even though they put her on the bilirubin light, for most parents, you do that. You think, you know, you think of the jaundice, but it's not a big deal. But with her, because her skin was translucent and under that light, it started crisping her skin. I called her my little crispy baby because her skin got so dark and uh, she just like looked like this little burned crispy baby. And I remember seeing that and I was like, God, restore her skin, please. And um. I was like, I know you can do this. Restore her skin and restore her body. And she would just be asleep. She had a little, her head of hair. And she was just so pretty, but she would just be asleep. All of a sudden, and I don't know when it happened, her skin was just this 
pretty caramel color. I never seen the skin shed or peel, but then it was just this pretty caramel color. And uh, the events that I remember was her skin was getting better. I was able to hold her. We found hats, <laughs> small enough. Some people had donated hats, uh, small enough for her. And some people had made some hats for her. And um, it's like, okay, was able to hold her. And then they changed her bed. And they told me what was going on is that since she's able to hold her temperature outside of her bed, we can put her in a normal bed setting rather than her still be in the incubator with the heat lamp. So I was like, okay, these are little small progressions, but they're great progressions. The way I could describe it is you have the baby that the world tells you about, and then you have a preemie baby. In my case, the doctor was like, your baby is not preemie. Your baby is micro-preemie. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. She said, yeah, she's like super small. And... um. It seemed like when she got out of the incubator and into a regular bed, I was able to put regular clothes on her. Around that time, they were trying to feed her um, as whatever milk they could, she would take. And I remember they said, we're trying with milk. And they had a syringe of milk and she started taking that. And we used the, um, she had the milk, and she became the face of uh, the fortifier. And she became the face of that, and because um, she plumped up like a turkey ball, <laughs> like a butterball turkey. And um, she was, she would eat every four hours. She was eating. You woke her up out of her sleep. She was eating. <laughs> it's like, where's my food? Um, but one thing I wanted to say was what I did was in the NICU, I joined the support group, the one that was there at the facility, but I also joined the one on Facebook. And I'm a strong believer of sowing and reaping. And I knew I had prayed. I knew I had spoke words of affirmation over her. And um, I knew that God was going to take care of her. I just had that faith and that strength to do that. Now, my husband, he was like, she's going to be fine. I don't care what the doctors say. She's going to be fine. So I felt like I didn't really have support from him. I did, but... He didn't have the empathy to understand what I was going through, which I understand he he would not have that because he really can't understand that unless she came from his box. But whatever I needed, he was there. Uh, he was working. I had stopped working while I was in the hospital. I would be on Facebook. And when I was home, I would be on Facebook with these support groups. And I would see different ones. And it was just whichever one the Spirit led me to pray for, I would pray. 
what I began noticing is that the more I prayed for these other moms and talked to these other families and really encouraged them, Amy was better. It was like almost like Amy was, she was taken care of. But I had to go through what I went through to be able to encourage other moms. Um, but she was a fighter. She's a very strong little girl, little firecracker. And the nurses enjoy taking care of her. I would go to the hospital eight in the morning and would not leave till about five or so, five or six, the end of the nurse's shift. So I knew all the nurses well, knew all the doctors well. This is where my priority is and where I wanted to be at at the time. And at the time, she was my life and what I felt I needed to do. So I was there and I would take care of the things. Everything I needed to take care of was taken care of. And I was, if I was, it was a blessing for me to be able to do that because my husband was working and my 12 year old at the time was in school. So there was no guilt of not being with her because when I went home, I was able to fully devote all my time to her. And, um, so we did that for 156 days. Long time. <laughs> A long time. Um, but I noticed the more I prayed for these women or encouraged them, Emily would do better. So then we got to where she was out of her out of the incubator. And I was able to dress my little baby doll up. So I was like, oh. Yeah, I could put clothes on her. All the clothes I had were too big. <laughs> they were all too big. So I I learned, and I didn't know this, that there were preemie clothes. And even the preemie clothes were a little bit too big. And I met some wonderful NICU moms who had smaller ba- who had small babies. And they gave me a lot of her preemie clothes that they had, but she couldn't really wear them. But I found some micro preemie clothes. I even had to go on Amazon and find a micro preemie nipple, a pacifier, which was so funny, but I did find it. I thank God because I find it because there was only, Philips was the only company still making them at the time because the normal pacifier that the hospitals have was too big for her. It was almost the size of her face. So it was just those little things that was so funny that and along with the diaper you don't you don't understand how small they are until you see the changes of the diaper until you see the sizes that are there and the size the first size of a diaper looked like a little um not even a maxi pad it looked like a um just like one of those protector pads. <laughs> but I, as she got bigger because of the fortifier and the milk, I've seen the diapers actually get bigger and bigger. And she finally was in a preemie diaper. <laughs> Not a newborn diaper, a preemie diaper. 
So I have all those diapers. I kept one of each just to show the progression of her growth. And it's it's so fun. It's like, wow, you're this small. Tell us about, did Emmy, did she have brain bleeds? Did she have, um, did she have surgeries? Did she have heart problems? Did she have, you know, when we talk about prematurity and micropremies, some of those things really come to mind. Right. And, um, and maybe her, her strongest or most difficult health concern for you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? When the first week she was born, I cried that whole week. After that, I didn't cry anymore. And the doctors would do all these blood gases and things like that with her. They told me about brain bleeds. They told me about neck. They told me about different things that you babies can experience with prematurity. And they were not sure if she had a brain bleed. And um, I was like, okay. So they would take her to do, um, they would check her lungs. Um, little funny side story, the respiratory therapists were taking an x-ray of her lungs and she was so small, they put her on a Kleenex box to lift her up and she tried to jump off the box. <laughs> I remember Susan, her respiratory, ter ther respiratory therapist saying, girl, where are you trying to go? <laughs> and she was just moving. Um, so her lungs were fine in that. They did say something about they may have thought she had a bleed but she did not have any bleeds any brain bleeds they thought maybe she because she was so small surely she's gonna have some type of brain bleed because it's a common thing to happen surely she would have encephalitis or surely she would have cerebral something she would have something because she was so small they were almost Sure and guarantee of it. Uh, um, the only other scare that we had was she was doing fine. She was about um, five months. And she just kind of started declining that day. And it wasn't a bad decline. It was it's one of those things for us. You go outside, you smell the air. And you get a little down and sick because you've caught a common cold or something. So he was like, I don't know. And Dr. G was like, I don't know what's going on with her. We're going to have to take and see, you know, draw some blood work and see what's going on. All I remember is I broke down in that moment. All this time I hadn't broken down. But. I broke down in that moment. He was like, mom, no, she's okay. We just think maybe she has an infection or she could have caught a cold or something. Now of all the things that we've gone through, the tests we've gone through, I broke down in that moment. It just had come 100% probably. And I was just like, I can't hold on anymore. <laughs> but um, I remember they took her to get an MRI in the box, the clear box. It's it's not something you want to see because it's a box and they don't like the box. She did not like the box because she was closed up and she was the kind of baby she didn't want anybody doing anything to her if they didn't have to. Um, 
And so everything came out fine with that. And I, I remember I wanted to go with her, but I couldn't go with her. And I'm sure there were reasons why, because I did probably think that I, the way they probably had to hold her or whatever, I probably would not be able to take as a mother. So I appreciate the protections. I really do. Even though at the time, I still wanted to do them. <laughs> because that's just a motherly, a motherly instinct. Um, but other than that, um, medications they gave her, standard medications at the time, which would have been like the IV medication, uh, vitamins, things like that. She had the fortifier in her milk, which was to help her get bigger. Um, uh, every now and then she would have some Benadryl. Um, other than that, there were no, I don't believe there were any other medications she, she was on. She got to the point to where she had just the nasal cannula around her nose and she was breathing more on her own. So even though she was as small as she was, there were not any complications or major complications in her in her growing, uh, which I thought was amazing because there were babies who were bigger than her that had other kind of complications. So that just goes to show that you just never know what's going to happen with the baby. You you just never know. Um, I was I got to the point I was there all the time. And so I started doing a lot of the nursing duties. <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to be able to change her and feed her and, you know, do this and do that. And it was the, the greatest thing. And I remember one time a nurse was like, you know, we know you're her mom and stuff, but we wanted to know, could we hold her? <laughs> I was like, yes. It was so funny. I'm like, I'm not trying to steal her. I promise I'm not trying to. I just wanted to take me being who I was, take some of that off of them because they're working on more than one baby. And I felt if I could just be efficient as well, then they could also give the care to some other baby too. So um, I enjoyed doing that, learning how to, you know, feed her and everything and how to hold her head and what to watch for and things like that. And it was so funny because at nighttime, I wasn't there, but I would hear the stories of how at nighttime she would just be up just looking at them <laughs> because she had, her signals were crossed to where she thought nighttime she was supposed to be up, daytime she was supposed to be asleep. So we, I bought her in some little toys to try to keep her up and stimulate her a little bit so that she would be able to go to sleep and that would, you know, that kind of helped a whole lot. But um, at seven months, well, about, yeah, about that time, July, she was able to be moved into, it just happened, which was crazy. I, I was just still coming there. I would put her little clothes on her. She was doing well. She was sitting up and they were like, hey, we're going to put her in this room and we're going to see if, you know, she's ready to be discharged. So we had to do the car seat test and everything. And I tell you, she screamed like <laughs> a banshee because 
not want to be in that car seat. I was like, no, Emily, we're not going to be able to go home. <laughs> and so uh, it was okay. It was okay. Um, and probably for about a good, after we went home, probably for about a good <sighs> six, seven months, she did not want to be in a car seat. She fussed because she wanted she wanted to be free. And for so long, she had tubes in her mouth. For so long, she was laying in the bed or what have you. So she didn't like that restriction. When we left the hospital, Emily had no oxygen attached to her. She had no medication she was on. Her lungs were working fine. Um, she was just like, the perfect little baby that was born at the 40 weeks that they're 40, 42 weeks they're supposed to be born. And she was about that size too. Because when we left, she was about seven pounds. And um, I thank God because she could have been on all kinds of medication. There's just so much that could have happened um, with her being so small. And every doctor I went to, that was their concern. Um, I remember in the hospital, the only thing, only other thing I remember was the eye doctor coming in. And I would have fought him the way that they checked the other baby's eyes. I mean, that's just what they do. And he does it so, huh, yeah. But he thought that she had stage one. He said it was fine, but he would continue to check on it. And that is a common thing with preemie babies where they need the glasses because for whatever reason, their vision is just not what it should be or, or what have you for whatever reasons I know. Well, leaving out the hospital, she didn't have it anymore. Um, and I tell you, prayers work, prayers work. Every time the doctor would tell me something or concern that they had, I would just go and pray. And that's all I could do. Um, but her, her, her main thing in the hospital was just being on an oscillator and a ventilator as long as she was. And they thought maybe that would cause some delays or some problems or something like that. So we left the hospital on 156 days. Oh my God, I just love the whole team that was there because without them, we wouldn't have gotten through what we got through. They are an amazing team. Uh, from the nurses to the doctors, to the respiratory therapists, to the janitor, Corman, everybody. The receptionist, everybody. I think the most important thing as a NICU mom, you have to understand when you go in, they do this day in and day out. So they are advocating for you and the babies. Doesn't seem like it, but they are to protect you, to protect them because they don't want to keep the babies. They want to see the babies thrive and grow. And to see Emily be able to leave out the hospital as small as she was, and to leave at seven pounds was amazing. So they were really happy with that, that staff. And I'm pretty sure that was an amazing feeling to them because 
she was so small and they didn't know. A lot of the nurses said, we just didn't know. We were, we were scared as well. So, um, and it was funny because they're like, you loved your baby to live. And I'm like, you guys helped me to love her to live because you, it was almost like they didn't know, I didn't know, but because I was determined to pray and stuff over her, I was their strength. They were my strength to get through that. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271-5072.